Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones coming to you from Washington. I'm host of the podcast Transformative Principle and author of the book School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, administrators, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. We are proud to announce that the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent, nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. We're also proud to welcome our inaugural mission partner, Buoyancy Digital. Buoyancy Digital is a digital advertising consultancy with an ethos. It was founded uh, by Scott Rabinowitz, who has been in digital media since 1997 and has overseen 300 million in youth safety compliant ad buys across all digital platforms. For IAB, Google, and being accredited brand and audience safe advertising sales solutions, media buying, and organizational training for media publishers, Please reach out to Scott at Digital uh, Buoyancy Digital. Man, I'm having a hard time with that today. Please reach out to Scott at buoyancydigital.com or at Scott R Media on LinkedIn. A transcontinental hello to you, Jethro. <laughs> Indeed. It's so exciting that you're in your new place in Brooklyn, and I'm looking forward to the day when I can come sleep on your couch. Well, it is there <laughs> waiting for you, and I will tell you it is a miracle that I am standing doing this interview after a week of moving. Yes. But there it is. I have the high privilege and honor today of introducing a longtime friend and colleague named Scott C. Tennant. He is a senior program strategist with the Risk Program Administrators and the Deputy Executive Director of the School Pool for Excess Liability Limits Joint Insurance Fund, commonly referred to as SPELL by its 83 New Jersey School District members. Scott has been been in the insurance and risk management field for 33 years, beginning as a retail broker focused on public agencies and migrating to public entity pool management in 1989. Scott is passionate about helping pools support their member public agency members slash owners, manage and mitigate risk to ensure a safe environment and to drive their total cost of risk down. In addition to these roles, Scott is a member of the National Council for the Advancement of Educator Ethics, a subcommittee of NASDAQ, which we've discussed several times, a member of the Legislative Committee of the New Jersey Self-Insured Association, a founding member of Prima New Jersey, and active with AGRIP, Prima, and NJASBO, which probably is not how they say it, but you know, there's always a new acronym pronunciation to learn. In any case, Scott, welcome, and you can fill us in on what all this means. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Jethro. It's a pleasure to be here, and you are correct. That is how people say it in Jasbo. I am right, I'm just on a roll today. <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs> all right. So, Scott, we, we, God, we could cover so much material with you. Obviously, you and I have had a chance to work together over the years. I have learned a ton about risk management and insurance, but... For the people who are listening who may not be familiar with some of this, tell us a little bit about insurance pools and how they work in the educational environment. Sure. Happy to do so. Uh, You have to go back to the 70s and 80s when the insurance community, the private insurance community, decided that public enterprise was too risky and started to drive rate increases and eliminate coverages. And what state legislatures did was they enabled public enterprise to form together into pools and create their own little, the best way to describe them is little mini insurance companies. So they pool their resources. They take, instead of 
a small deductible like they might if they were on their own. They take a big deductible that they own as a group on a claim basis, and then they buy reinsurance above that. Now, of course, they're busy, right? They're busy administrators. They're running these complex organizations called schools. So they hire contractors to run their little insurance company. That's what I am. So I'm an administrator. And like the board and the relationship between the board and the superintendent of schools, I'm like a superintendent. They own their pool. They decide what their pool's going to do and what it isn't going to do. And then they look at me and they say, you make it so. I help them manage that on a day-to-day basis, organizing the claims people, the attorneys, the medical, the actuarial, the safety and loss control, all of the other contract vendors, so that what we all are doing every single day is doing all we can prospectively and reactively to limit the amount of money that schools spend on insurance because they have much, many more needs and much better purpose for their limited resources. So essentially, a pool is a group of like-minded public entities with similar risk profiles who work really hard not to spend their money on insurance purposes. So is that all kinds of insurance, health insurance for employees and fire insurance for buildings and all that kind of stuff? Pools can be all of that, right? So the pool that I'm involved with is called a property and casualty pool. So what is all of that's general liability, auto liability, workers' compensation, property, crime, cyber liability, environmental liability, educators' legal liability, which is... uh, basically errors and emissions insurance and employment practices liability insurance. So we're in all lines, property and casualty pool. What we don't get involved with is health insurance, right? There are pools that do that alone. There are some pools across the country that do all of that, right? So it depends upon the intent and purpose of the membership as to which lines of coverage they're managing. In our particular circumstance, it's the property and casualty lines. So, Scott, here's something that you and I have talked about, I think, many times over the years that we've known each other. Your history in the insurance industry, I think, gives you a great perspective to talk about the impact of technology on school risk and school liability. So in general terms, what are the changes that you've seen over the years? You know, that's a great question. And um, I, I like to describe that evolution as follows. When technology was first introduced into school systems, it was really pretty much an operational facilities focus. So it was finance and operations. Um, and school districts, by and large, were reluctant Uh, to share any devices with instructional staff, certainly not with students, and and didn't. That started to change with the advent of the internet and the use of the internet for research purposes and other reasons. So schools were kind of forced to let instructional staff in on on the environment. As they did, uh, the risk profile changed And the risk profile 20 years ago was, oh my God, our teachers might leave the classroom, leave their computer running, and kids might get over to it, figure out the password, get on the internet, and frankly, find porn. So all sorts of districts. And that was, that did happen. It was a problem. So that becomes a potential litigation issue. That becomes a risk that people recognize. So the solution was software that prohibited certain sites. You couldn't get to certain sites. Uh, Unfortunately, what it didn't uh, result in was a very strict lockdown on passwords and the use of passwords. And I remember having lectures that we said, you know, don't put them on sticky notes and post it to your screen. That's really a problem. As it unfolded, as it unpacked, it became an instructional mission with whiteboards and and 
all sorts of devices and access to the internet and integration with the internet, research on the internet, devices instead of a laptop on a cart, portable devices, owned or unknown devices. Now, all of a sudden, the exposure profile changed radically with kids having access to the systems uh, of a school district, the systems of a school district have having a suddenly robust IT framework with a lot of different access points. So this kind of happened like an explosion in school districts. And at a moment in time, if you freeze frame right there, you go, who's the, who are the people managing that risk profile? Who are the people managing the security profile of the IT infrastructure? Well, most of the people at that point in time who were involved in IT in schools, they were either instructional staff members who had a keen interest in IT and were kind of recruited inside to help build out into instruction, the IT environment. And they were really good at software. They tended to be very good at software, not so good at hardware. Or they were people that were hired from the outside to build out this hardware platform really weren't all that good with software. Now, all of a sudden, you're not dealing with maybe a, a handful of software environments. You're dealing with a giant basket full of software and the demand from instruction, the instructional side of the house to add more and more different softwares because there's all this extraordinary instructional software available. Well, everybody's doing this and nobody's really thinking about the security issues. They've, they've kind of abandoned that because they're also not getting a significant number of claims associated with it yet. Yet, I will say yet, right? At that time, in my experience, that's when I'm going, hey guys, timeout, stop, be careful. You know, you need to attend to the security issues. You can't just have passwords that are four digits. You know, you can't have half your staff with a password that's one, two, three, four. Uh, that's not wise. You need to be paying attention to these things and you need to start managing them. Not everybody can have the administrative rights to the software that needs to be managed. But this was not well received in school districts because it, it slowed down the pace of innovation and it caused the instructional side of the house to, to go, wow, wait a minute, that's, a, that's such a hassle doing all of that. Please, we don't want to do that. So it wasn't really attended to. So it I just got larger. That footprint got larger. And here's what happened initially. DDoS, right? This, a distributed denial of services. After DDoS came ransomware, these things had this impact. And this is what I always say, or have been talking to school district members about is, and I'm from New Jersey, right? So in New Jersey, we have big snowstorms. And I used to say to them, listen, here's what cyber is going to be if you're not careful. If you don't recognize it, cyber is going to be like a giant snowstorm, a giant snowstorm, 25 inches of snow. And if you had 25 inches of snow, would you know what to do? And I'd wait a little bit. And I'd say, of course you do. You have a plan for that. You know exactly what you're going to do. Yes, you might lose a couple of days of instruction, but you're going to start clearing the main entries and exits. You're going to clear the parking lots. You're going to get ready. You're going to get people back as soon as you can. Cyber is like a giant snowstorm, right? It, you, you are now at risk of being shut down, stopped in your tracks because you're no longer able to educate due to a cyber storm, right? And let me ask you simply, if you have a cyber storm that shuts down your systems, do you know what you're going to do? And people would just stare at me because they had no idea what they were going to do. They were like, oh, my God. They would leave those discussions and go back and talk to their IT people and go, is, that, is, is he crazy or is that possible? It, it's now at a point where everybody recognizes, oh, my God, yes, that's absolutely possible. It's happened a lot of times in every state, in every county. So everybody knows a person or another district where it has happened or it's happened to them. And here's what they're starting to recognize. They're so far behind the eight ball when it comes to investments in security architecture 
in security policy and procedure that they know they're at tremendous risk. And COVID-19 has only made that clearer and more pronounced. So one of the things you said that I find really fascinating is people weren't dealing with it because there weren't a lot of claims. And the reality is, is that even in education, money talks. And so if you're getting sued over something, you put policies and procedures in place to be able to stop those things from happening again. And every educator who has been spent any time in a school knows that there are policies and procedures in place because somebody did something and the district got sued. And that is the only reason why that specific policy exists is to prevent that from happening. And so as time has gone by, surely you've certainly seen more claims come up and especially around, you know, cyber issues that the insurance company, the spell has to take care of that, right? The pool does uh, when a system is down for several days because of a ransomware attack or a DDoS or something like that, right? Jethro, you're, you're spot on, right? Our, the expectation is that the spell is prepared to help, that the spell has the necessary ingredients waiting to help a school district dig out from that snowstorm and get back up and operating. And we do because we purchase insurance products that will attend to the third-party liability if you get sued. It'll do that. But more importantly, it'll provide the legal, the public relations, and the data forensics that help you get figure out what do I do about it and how do I get back up and running? And then how do I tell people about what's happened? So they're all there. But the problem is that you know this is a marketplace, an insurance marketplace, where Cyber liability policies, despite the fact that the growth in the number of policies and premium year over year is well over 20%, that's a lot. They still, they aren't, they still aren't making any money. So this year and last year, there are giant changes coming that, that are shifting the burden of proactive risk management back to the insured right? That's what the carriers do. They go, look, if I can't make money doing this, I'm going to change my policy construct. Much larger deductibles, co-insurance, all kinds of things that's going to put a goodly portion of the money issue back into the budget of the insured, okay? And that will provide incentive for those insureds who are investing correctly in reducing the risk by having less financial risk in a claim. That is what's happening right now all across the world, regardless of what kind of enterprise you are, but very much focused on education. And the reason is that the claim stream internationally and very acutely nationally in this country has been focused on education in terms of the ransomware hits. And the reason is, Education seen as low-hanging fruit. They're easy. It's easy to get in. It's easy to spend time in there. And it's easy to follow patterns of behavior and then lock people into a ransomware demand. It happens way too often every single day. It just seems so spot on, Scott, for you to talk about that, given the colonial pipeline incident that happened in this country just this past week. And, you know, presumably an energy company is going to have the resources to try to harden its infrastructure to a much greater degree than schools necessarily are. And and I think that this underscores a point that I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on, which is that if you go back far enough, you know, 60s, 70s, schools had much greater control over their infrastructure. But with the onset of computers and, in particular, student devices, schools have, I think, largely lost that sense of control. And it feels to me like they're vastly more vulnerable than they were half a century ago. Well, there's no question. Uh, And then the flip side of that is there are products and services out there that, that absolutely, if utilized, can put a school district back in control. Right? They can geographically net their campuses so that you can't mess with their internet. You can't abuse it. You've got to stay within the rules or you'll get locked out. 
um, there, there are tools. The, the problem, the huge problem with the tools is that it requires uh, a, a constant IT presence within the tools to manage the feedback. So if you look at endpoint protection, uh, right? So you're going to have endpoint protection that involves artificial intelligence because the attackers are using it. So you, you need to be as smart as them. And you, you have a choice in, that, in those. You, you can buy endpoint protection that identifies something and tells you about it and asks you to make a decision. Or you can buy endpoint protection that identifies something, decides it's a risk and closes it off. And here's the difference. If you're being advised, somebody has to pay attention because the risk is real time. You know, you give it eight hours before you attend to it, you could be in trouble. You could be in a lot of trouble. So you need to have staff who are paying attention to those things and making decisions. Now, if it just closes it off, here's the risk you run. It's going to close off current software that is part of the instructional staff purview, and all of a sudden people can't teach. So you, if you buy that, you, you need to have the capacity to respond to somebody who's going, hey, what happened to this? And you've got to go, be able to go in there and go, oh, okay, here's the issue, make the adjustments, and then narrow the channel to, to those who need to have access and not others. So managing this risk isn't simple, um, and it requires a commitment not only in resources for various softwares, but a commitment in having the correct staff and then aligning the software to your staffing capacity. Beyond that, communicating with staff. So instructional staff need to understand, you know, that while there may be some difficulty restricting administrative rights, administrative passwords, and narrowing the number of folks who have it, it's the best way to secure the district. So people have to be involved in all of this on many levels in order for a school district to have a thoughtful plan that when it doesn't go well and there is an issue, everybody agrees to a remedy despite its, its relative difficulties somewhere in the organization because geez, we can't, we, we can't get shut down. It's better than being shut down. It's better than having ransomware. It's better than the alternative. But without that kind of thinking and discussion going on, you run the risk of having the old kind of what feel like intractable problems where one side of the house is resisting the other side of the house's desire to manage risk. So uh, I can narrow that down to, okay, dual factor authentication. You can't get into the system without dual factor authentication. Well, that is a quantum leap past no more four digit codes, right? Now, not only do you need a password that is complex, but you also need to wait until you get a duo notification or some other form of dual factor authentication before you're in the system. Those things, the, although they sound trivial, are really difficult. They're, they're tough issues in school districts. That kind of change in habit is difficult to manage, but must be managed, must be managed because as you know, Fred, cyber liabilities, the vast majority of cyber issues are people associated with, right? They're failures to protect your passwords, failure to understand or see uh, phishing emails. Just they are human in nature. And so the first priority, the first vector in managing risk associated with the cyber and IT environment is the human. And there it has to be more understanding and a better consensus of thought so that everybody understands, geez, you know, if I'm good at this and I'll call it cyber hygiene, I'm going to, I'm going to help protect the district. I'm going to help protect my students, but I'm also learning how to protect myself because I'm at risk all the time personally in, in my digital world. 
And I really shouldn't be separating the work and, and the personal because a lot of times they kind of converge. And I think your discussion of the human element, of course, is critical because so much of, of what schools are trying to protect from are a variety of human choices that people make, hacking or ransomware or something like that. But certainly a topic that you and I have delved into at great length are all of the little humans running around <laughs> with their own devices and you know, creating not just IT risks, but creating personnel risks with the members of the school community. And, and it seems to me that that's a, perhaps one of the most profound shifts is the ability of people to engage in unmonitored conversations that sometimes lead to potential liability for a school district. So well, yes, AI is critical for protecting you know, the access issues and, and the unwanted intrusions, but we have so much work to do to continue to improve the human intelligence or the emotional intelligence piece of the people who work in schools. Oh, 100%. Add to that, Fred, the fact that it's certainly true in New Jersey, and I think it's become pretty much true across the nation that schools are being held responsible for the behavior of their students on a 24-7 basis, right? So it's at a minimum portal to portal. So, okay, a kid pops out of the front door, on your watch, gets in the bus, on your watch, comes to school, on your watch, leaves school, on the bus, back home, on, all on your watch with a device and they're into social media and they're, what they're doing in social media is often innocent, but many times really disparaging and very harmful to, to one another, right? And you can't ignore it like, oh, well, gee, how would I know, right? That's, that's not gonna help you. You're still gonna get tagged in a liability suit, especially if Sarah is being bothered by Johnny and Sarah's parents have a conversation and call you and say, hey, something's happening here. This is what Sarah says. I would ask that you please intervene and you don't, you're in trouble, right? You're, you're gonna be held responsible at some level because you are expected to be the, the neutral intermediary who's helping kids navigate these things. I'm way on board with you, Fred. How do you start that social emotional education and tie it into what I call cyber hygiene between kids where they understand cyber bullying is really no different than physical bullying. You know, it's that behavior is still not okay. We have to treat one another mindfully and respectfully. That's how it is. It's a giant task. Well, and that, that brings up also the inappropriate things that adults do with kids as well, that your group, as far as I understand, you're responsible for those kinds of settlements as well. Is that right? Yes. In our business, in the insurance related business, the insurance community has tagged those issues uh, collectively as they call them SAM, the capital S, capital A, capital M, standing for sexual abuse and molestation claims. Um, sexual abuse and molestation claims, there, there are two things in a reinsurer. So I'm um, just kind of explain what that is. So this pool gets together and it says, well, the first $250,000 of any claim is ours. And then we'll buy reinsurance above $250,000 to 20 million, right? So there's the simple math and there's a way to think about it. So the reinsurers, what are they on the hook for? Not the everyday claims. They're on the hook for the really bad claims. And I'm going to tell you which two types of claims scares the bejesus out of. Can I say bejesus? Probably not. Scares the heck sure out did. of. Sure <laughs> did. Um, right? It's a bus accident and a SAM claim. In that order. Why a bus accident? A tractor trailer hits a bus full of kids. That's going to be a gigantic problem for the reinsurers. It'll blow through $250,000 in a moment. A SAM claim is doing the same thing. SAM claims are very, very, very expensive claims because it shocks the conscience. No one can accept 
that a teacher who is, who is entrusted with our children to be us in the absence of us, right, during the day could possibly in any way, if you will, to a relationship with a child, a relationship with a student. It's not at any level, at in any way, okay. It's not okay. And juries are absolutely making that clear all across the nation with gigantic awards. You know, you think of what happened at the Sandusky and the Penn State. You think of what happened at uh, University of Michigan. You can talk about higher education, and then you can start talking about public schools, and you can talk about uh, LA Unified, you can talk about horrific claims across the nation. And what people don't understand is just so many 40 million, 100 million, 200 million claims. And the insurance companies go, okay, I'm done. I, I don't, you don't pay me enough money to be able to respond like that. It doesn't work. It's bad math. When they get to that point, they do a number of things. And the only things they have left to do is, well, your $250,000 retention, we'll give you the coverage, but you have a $10 million retention. So you're on the first 10 million and we'll go excess of that. A school district can't handle that $10 million either, right? No, no. And they know, they, they know that, but they go, well, just because that's true doesn't mean I go bankrupt right? I don't stay in this risk position. And the only way you keep the good faith of your reinsurers is when they know you're a partner in the solution, that you're not ignoring it, but you're engaged. You are working very hard, very diligently to mitigate that risk, if not reduce it or eliminate it, right? That then they'll go, okay, I just took it on the chin with a very bad claim, but I'm going to hang in there with you because I know you're working hard and we'll consider this one an anomaly. One is bad. Two is really troubling. Three is a pattern. So you need to be working real hard and you need to be working real hard, very proactively. If you've never had the claim, don't assume you won't. Don't make those false assumptions. Work hard all the time to make certain you don't have a horrific bus accident. Well, make sure and work hard all the time that you don't have anybody making dreadful errors uh, and mistakenly engaging with a student, their ward, as a peer and doing things that are just horrible. Do all you can okay, to make certain that when you hire, you're not hiring a known predator, right? Do all you can, but don't ignore it. If you it's ignore it, you're going to be in trouble. So Scott, I think the other challenge here is that we often don't know the jury award amounts in every situation. We may have an idea or hear some report, but we don't always know that people are, are receiving some sort of settlement from it. And certainly school districts aren't publicizing that they're with their insurance company paying out all this money. Is it important to have that communication and let people know what's going on? Or is it better to kind of keep it quiet as much as we can so that people don't get other ideas and start abusing the system themselves? It, that's a great question. My response is always the same. Okay. Don't hold back. You know, if you think that by not talking about it or not sharing the information, the information isn't out there, you're wrong. And the reason I say that is, there's a plaintiff bar that is very aware of all of it. And they share regularly that they know. And you're not going to change their appetite by being quiet. You're also not going to change their appetite by sharing. What you might do, right, if you share, is you might grab the attention of those who are at risk of understanding these things. What person who works for a school district, whether they are instructional or operational staff, who among them ever wants to be in a position where they are accused, even accused, let's say wrongly, they're definitely wrongfully accused of a inappropriate relationship 
with a child student. Right? If there's anybody who wants to be there, that is the pedophile predator. But 99.9% of everyone else is going, no way. I want nothing to do with that. God, I don't ever want to be in that place. They react that way because at some level, they understand the risk. At some level, they understand the punitive reality of such an accusation, whether it's true or not. It, it could be a career ender. At a minimum, it makes it almost impossible to function. Right? How, how do you keep functioning under those scenarios? There's enough weight of reality there to help districts engage in the discussion and that discussion being about the risk. You cannot be in education and not be at risk of the relationship you have with the students. You can't. Things can happen that where you haven't really done anything, but the impression that is created by circumstances puts you in an incredibly awkward position and at risk. You also, if you are an educator, you are because you really care about kids. You really want to help them excel. You want them to be robust academic and athletic people. You want them to be all they can be, and you want them to be successful. That, that's who you are. In that milieu, you are going to be approached by your students in a million different ways in those approaches, in those one-on-one -on -one circumstances. You need to be able to navigate. You need to be able to recognize when there's a risk associated with different decisions. And you need to make the better decisions. And you need to have faith in your colleagues that you can then talk about these things and go, hey, look, I need a little help. I don't want to betray the child. I want to help the child, but I don't want to put the child or myself at risk. How do we help this kid? Those are the kinds of discussions that are natural to the to school district communities. But they're so hard to talk about when you talk about that relationship, because no one wants to think of themselves as making those horrible discussions or those horrible decisions where they've made a mistake, where they've, they've sure. forgotten. This is my oh, ward, not my right. peer. No, Scott, this has been one of the challenges in terms of doing the Cybertrap series, right? Is that right. people don't want to sit down and say, not only are there these examples of people people making bad choices, but if I'm not careful, I could make a bad choice myself. That's a hard conversation to have with people. My question for you, as someone who's been in the insurance industry for ages, is that we're confronting a situation where the potential liability for these school districts is increasingly going to have a concrete impact on the tax liability for the public or for their ability to maintain public education. So how do we establish the kinds of best practices, literally from parenting up through the schools to make it clear that the organizations have exercised reasonable care in identifying potential harms and preventing them. Is that the path forward for dealing with these incredible judgments? Well, yes. And I wish I could define it beyond yes and a supporting statement for what you just said. And the because it's some mix. You know that I am a huge fan of the Model Code for Ethics for Educators. I am a huge fan of what NASDAQ and the NCAE are doing and Dr. Hutchings, right? And I believe that when his book is out, it will spawn a whole series of very useful tools that school districts can employ to engage in this discussion locally without finger pointing, without feeling threatened, and really thoughtfully exploring the subject matter. But that doesn't necessarily bridge to how do we deal with the kids 
how do we deal with community? I think a lot of the work that's going on right now in social emotional learning is kind of key to that because there, therein lies the segues, if you will, to a more robust discussion with the students. And then there's the wild card of parents. We can't make any assumptions about how parents think about this subject matter other than we can all agree. There's not a single parent out there that wants their kids molested in any way, sexually or otherwise, harassed in any other way, sexually or otherwise. But then talking about boundaries, relationships, things like that, you can't assume that all your parents are going to agree with the way you approach it. It's just extraordinarily difficult to proscribe that navigation. You know, Fred, I advocate start the discussion. I, I am a big proponent about start discussing this. Start discussing this among, among the professional staff. Why? Schools are remarkably good at figuring all those questions out. As long as they are engaged in the discussion, they are remarkably good at it. They're better than all the rest of us at it. So my mission, my purpose is to help them engage in the discussion where nobody's threatened by the discussion, nobody's scared of the discussion. And, and any leader, superintendent, other leaders in the school district, including the board, can openly say, yeah, this is what we're doing. We're talking about it in this way, within this framework. That's why I love the model code of ethics for educators. Okay, we're talking about it within the um, framework of education and ethics. Who's going to yell at you about that? Who's going to complain about that? Most people will go, geez, what do you, what do you mean? Can you, can you share with that? Share more about that with me? And then you have an opportunity to engage your community in the discussion as well. So I, I think it's all about engaging in the discussion, choosing to go after a courageous conversation in a subject matter that has heretofore been not talking about it. Sorry, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you it doesn't happen here. I know it happens in other places, it doesn't happen here. That's gotta change. That's gotta be like, no, it could happen here. It could happen anywhere. And there's this risk because we're all in education and we should all talk about the risk. We should all talk about how to manage it, how to recognize it, how to see it. And we should all get better every day at doing that. And if we do, yeah, you're going to mitigate the risk. You're going to you're going to collapse it down to a very very small problem. And I contend, if you really are talking about it in a robust way, you will see the the real tiny fraction of people who are uh, predators, because they're going to be unusual in their responses and their reactions, and they're going to be uncomfortable. I I think that that last piece that you just said is is so so key because if somebody who is doing these things in the darkness likes doing them in the darkness because they're in the darkness. And if they are brought to light and they are talked about openly and, you know, people are saying this behavior looks creepy or this behavior looks inappropriate. How do we understand that? How do we work through that? How do we talk about that? And I want to share just one little thing from my first year teaching that I experienced and rather than an appropriate, healthy way of talking about it, I was shunned and made to feel like I was grooming children, which I absolutely was not, but I was working in an inner city school and had a lot of behavioral challenges and kids who were not focused. And one of the things I said in a staff meeting was that I find that it's very helpful if I'm talking to a student to stand close to them so that I can put my hand on their arm while I'm talking to them. And everybody looked at me like I was the worst person in the world because I was engaging in grooming type behavior, which I wasn't. I was a first year teacher saying, I don't know how to deal with these kids that, that I've never worked with before. And I'm call, asking for help. Is this an okay thing to do? And everybody, everybody got quiet. Everybody just stared at me. And I felt like I was the bad person because I was trying to figure out how to work with these kids. And later somebody came up to me and said, that's not okay because it looks like, you know, inappropriate touching or whatever. And I was like, there was nothing wrong with what I was doing. It was a perfectly natural human thing to do. But the conversation, instead of being supportive and let's help you figure it out, was incredibly accusatory. And you are a bad person already because you even mentioned that. And, 
And that's not the kind of conversation that's going to help people. And I really appreciate what you, what you say that it can't be accusatory, but it needs to be a thoughtful discussion where people can talk about it. And that's going to push people away who want to be predators. And that's what we want. We don't want them in our schools. <laughs> and so right. talking about them is going to keep them away from it. What a shame. And Jethro, I'm, thank you for sharing that. It's horrifying to me, frankly. It's, it just reinforces to me because here's what schools are doing in a large way. And it goes to Fred's earlier issue. What do we do that reduces our liability? Well, people have been sold on the idea that all you have to do is learn how to identify the predators and and understand grooming. And you just identify them, you kick them out and that there. Case closed, issue gone. How do you differentiate between that natural ethos of caring and that observational understanding that you just described where... My students respond better when I'm proximate and I can touch their arm. They, they are more comfortable. They're more relaxed. They learn more. Whoa, wait a minute. Is that, is, that, is that just good teaching or is that grooming? Well, when, when whole institutions start pointing at each other and going, you're a groomer, you're a groomer, you're a groomer. Oh, my God. What's going to happen to that educational institution? I mean, That, to me, is just absolutely frightening. School districts are unlike any organization on the planet. They operate differently. They function differently. Nobody outside of them really understands them. So they are, and they're dealing with our kids. So our expectations are monumental. They're under pressure to perform in ways that we don't even really articulate well. So here is this little group of this rather small organization, this little group of people who are trying desperately to perform exceptionally well and and do it appropriately. And who do they rely upon? One another, because the outside world doesn't really get them. Well, if they start tearing each other apart, what's going to be left? What good will that do? I'm deathly afraid of that sweeping across the nation like that's the panacea. That's how to solve the risk issue, because I think you turn educational institutions upside down. You turn people against one another and you rip at the fabric of confidence. I'm really scared of that. And it has to be different than that. It has to be a thoughtful discussion. It has to be an engaged discussion that doesn't go away. It's part of what you do all the time. Help each know each other navigate. You help each other avoid risk. You help each other make really good decisions. And you do it thoughtfully and you do it internally. Why? Because educators know best. You know, Jethro, your story reminded me of so many articles I've read. COVID-19, right? COVID-19. Who were the educators who were totally blown apart by the distance? They were almost all of the educators who are associated with special education, with kids in need. Why? All of them. Read everything that any one of them said. And they said, I need to be close to my students. I can't be six feet away from my students. They all say that. Why? Because it is very obvious within that needs group of students that proximity is important, that one-on-one involvement is critical. That's not grooming. That's education for crying out loud. So, it, we're distorting things in ways that don't make any sense to me and that I think are destructive. I think they're destructive to education itself. Well, and we're looking for easy answers to really difficult, complex problems and right. looking for the, the easy way out to say, if I can point to it and name it, then, I'm, then I know that that's bad and I can just move on. And, and it's way more complex than that because not everybody reacts in the same way. Not everybody does the same thing. And, and, what, and here's the real kicker for me is that what one person does completely innocently, someone who's a groomer can do very inappropriately and be used as a grooming tool. And that's what's partly so scary about this is that you can be caught in that without, without knowing it, how it could look on the outside. But then when you're afraid to come forward and say, this is what happened, what do I do? then you're immediately shunned or bullied or written up because you 
made an honest mistake. And there has to be a way to, to talk through that so that you know what the intention is and, and how people are acting. And it's a scary place to be involved in because it could ruin your whole entire life, even an accusation with no truth behind it. Oh, sure. That that's absolutely true. And and Jethro and Scott, because you know, I think you're you're both coming at this from a similar perspective. This underscores the need to figure out both the best best practices that can be established educational community wide, as well as the kind of ethical training, Jethro, that you and I have been discussing, so that there's a greater degree of confidence and clarity in the actions of educators. And if we can get past this kind of what I still believe is a technological panic, right? We're still adapting to the impact of technology in our schools. Once we can get past that, hopefully we can have a more rational and mature approach to precisely the kinds of issues you're discussing. I agree. Yeah, 100%. And we have to learn to do it because without having a rational, confident framework, I don't see how anybody mitigates the risk. I only see how people compound it. And that's not good. Well, more than anything else, Scott, it's simply not an effective way to run an educational system. And we need to do that more effectively. This has been, as I expected, a terrific conversation. So thank you so much for your time. Yes, thank oh, you. Thank you both. Jethro and Fred, thank you. I appreciate uh, it. Appreciate the opportunity to talk. Maybe we start a conversation or two. That, so. is, that is precisely our objective. And for those of you who are listening, you will know that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we will continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, best practices, school insurance, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. If you're still listening, you must have loved this episode like we did. Please leave a five-star rating and review in your podcast service of choice. And we appreciate having you in our audience and we look forward to seeing you on our live show on Monday.